Мы шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash seansrussiablog or to the podcast website, seansrussiablog.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. The early Soviet government cabinet, the Council of People's Commissars, or Sovnarkom, under Lenin's leadership, has been a mostly ignored subject among Russian historians. There are good reasons why. Sovnarkom's significance was quickly overshadowed by the emergence of the Bolshevik Party's Politburo as the chief executive of the Soviet system. But what kind of government did Lenin envision with Sovnarkom? How did it look and function different from a bourgeois parliamentary democracy? Why did it decline and its executive powers transfer to the party? These questions not only concern the workings of the early Soviet state, but also reflect general problems of transitional periods of political and institutional change. I turn to Lara Dowds for some answers. Lara Dowds is an assistant professor of history at Durham University, specializing in the history of the institutions and political culture of the early Soviet government. She's the author of Inside Lenin's Government, Power, Ideology, and Practice in the Early Soviet State, published by Bloomsbury. I also provided a partial transcript of this interview. I'll put a link in the show notes and on the podcast website. Here's Laura Doubts. So your book, Inside Lenin's Government, Ideology, Power, and Practice in the Early Soviet State, is really an overdue examination of the formation in early years of the uh, Council of People's Commissars, or Sovnarkom. So I thought we'd start by just having you talk about what is Sovnarkom and how has it been generally understood by scholars? So Sovnarkom, Soviet Narodnych Commissarov, as you said, Council of People's Commissars is how we usually translate it was the the body that was established at this momentous uh, second congress of soviets so the day after the october revolution this second congress of soviets meets um, and the bolsheviks have this power they're in the majority here and they decide to set up um, what they believe to be the you know, the world's first workers and peasants socialist government and their cabinet then so their government cabinet is this Council of People's Commissars. And effectively, it's the place, um, I argue at least, where all sort of high-level government decision-making is being carried out in the early couple of years after the October Revolution. Um, and it's it's made up of, um, well, Lenin, of course, as, as chairman um, of the Council of People's Commissars, um, and a number of others. So I think they are 11 um, fellow commissars. And then I think there is sort of a trio who are responsible for military affairs. Um, and it's, yeah, it's interesting that in some ways they are um, carrying over, um, you know, the similar sort of division of business as the, the provisional and the Tsarist government. So, you know, they have... Um, commissariats for things like labor, post and telegraph, foreign affairs, um, you know, enlightenment, Lunacharsky famously commissar for enlightenment. Um, they have, I, I like to claim the first female cabinet minister in world history as Alexandra Kollontai, um, who's mm. commissar for social welfare. I'm not entirely sure about this. I'm waiting for someone to disprove me. So if any of your listeners right. know, they should get in touch and tell me I'm telling lies. Um, but I think, you know, at least she's at least one of the first female cabinet ministers in then. Um, 
And it's interesting that the choice of um, commissars, I think, in the name um, here is, is significant in that firstly, they just, you know, Trotsky remarks in his memoir that we just thought it had a, a sort of more revolutionary ring to it. But I think it goes a bit deeper that it's something about getting rid of minister. This is like an anti-bosses kind of feeling that's going on here, I think. And, and it's, it's in the legislation setting up Sovnarkom, um, it's very clear that these are supposed to be collegial. Uh, it's a, Sovnarkom is a collegial body that is made up of chairman or representatives of other collegia, the commissariat. So there's a sense in which if you're getting rid of kind of hierarchical um, bourgeois ministers um, who, you know, are centralising um, sort of um, system. Um, and yeah, um, Sovnarkom is um, supposed to be uh, responsible or accountable to um, the larger standing body that was this... Um, um, the, the All-Russian Central Executive Committee, which is the larger body. It's made up of, I don't know, what is it? It's in the hundreds of representatives. Um, and it's, the, you know, the, as I mentioned, the second uh, Congress had formed the Central Executive Committee, which is the standing body, a sort of quasi-legislature for which Sovnarkom is the sort of quasi-executive. But I say quasi because... The Bolsheviks were not keen on this idea of kind of division of powers. They they saw right. that as something you know that was that bourgeois parliamentary systems did, and there was all a sort of con, um, you know, um, a fig leaf for um, bourgeois democracy to con people. Um, and yeah, so this um, it's 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 a re- sort of a representative form of government without being um, a parliamentary form is is the way that they envisage right. this, I suppose. And and how do historians or other scholars, un, un, how have they understood this body? So for much of the um, history of it, I think it's been pretty um, pretty well sidelined, really, the, the, um, the significance of Sovnarkom. Um, I think there were, there was a focus much more on the role and the significance of the communist party bodies which we're all much right. you know we're more familiar with um, the politburo and the org bureau and um, the party state monolith you know that occupies the soviet political landscape really from the it's from the early 20s until uh, until gorbachev tries to to disentangle the party state with his reforms in the, in the 80s so during the cold war in particular i think it's interesting that there's a kind of mirror image of opposite, you know, defenders and detractors of this party state monolith. Um, you know, the, the official sort of Soviet historians have this agenda, of course, to portray the party state. And, you know, as if the, you know, the Politburo is the sort of natural executive of the government from day one. Um, right. and, and also the, the sort of cold warriors from the Anglophone side also want to portray this as the natural state of affairs because they want to sort of condemn um, so-called Soviet democracy as being sort of this um, ultra-centralised, um, repressive, monolithic system from day one. So it's pretty much, um, yeah, it's been neglected, really. Um, yeah. And, uh, and yeah, it's been, I suppose, seen as the Soviet apparatus when it hasn't been neglected. It's been viewed as a sort of fig leaf or sort of window dressing to cover up where the real power lay, you know, and, and scholars like Shapira writing in the 60s say things like... Um, you know, the, the the Bolsheviks and Lenin ruled through the party central committee, you know, immediately after the October Revolution. So it's it's not until much later that historians began to, well, one historian began to take Sovnarkom a bit more seriously. Um, right. And this is um, a very well-known classic book by T.H. Rigby, um, 1979, um, Lenin's government. His, his, this first serious... Um, English language study of, of Sovnarkom, where he, he says, hang on, wait a minute, all this sort of elegant totalitarian logic is nice on paper, but when you actually scratch the surface, it seems that Sovnarkom actually 
did have a significant role to play as government cabinet and it wasn't just a sort of facade for right. the, the, the Communist Party um, from, you know, day one of, of the October Revolution. You know, I was surprised in your book, you, you note that um, State and Revolution, this book that, that Lenin wrote, and, and, you know, I always considered it, and I, I'm not alone in this, is kind of one of these moments in which Lenin is very utopian. He's, he's kind of looking at the revolution and trying to map out the future of what the state will be. And, and you, you actually point out that it really kind of functioned as a foundational text in his thinking of, of in terms of building the Soviet state. Um, so uh, in what ways does the early Soviet state seek to realize some of state and revolution's prescriptions? Yeah, great. I think, yeah, it's, it's a strange old text, state and revolution, isn't it? And it's divided opinion um, amongst all scholars that have sought to interpret its meaning I think and yeah some focusing on that kind of ultra democratic utopian withering of the state and others focusing much more on the kind of violent uh, themes there um but yeah it's it's strange it's something that I read you know at the beginning of the PhD I read this um and put it to one side and thought mm, I'm not really sure that you know how how useful this is going to be. And it wasn't really until I'd, I'd finished the archival work, I'd come back, I was quite far into the, the writing up process, that I started to feel, I need to go back and look at this because there are kind of elements of the state apparatus and the way that, that Lenin and the other early civilians were talking about what they were trying to achieve in debureaucratizing this state apparatus that that reminded me of some of those broader principles of state and revolution. And so for me, the, the, the main thing really was that Lenin is absolutely emphatic in state and revolution that the state is this basically special kind of organisation of force for the suppression of one class over another, as it were, so the bourgeois state. And as always, he's he's not writing a kind of um, you know, abstract philosophical text here. He's always it's his writings are always so linked to what's going on in you know the concrete form, the concrete struggle, as it were. Um, and he's arguing with people like Kautsky and Bernstein and, and Mensheviks, other moderate socialists in Russia, who are saying you know we can work with existing provisional government structures um, and have a more sort of peaceful transition. And, and Lenin is kind of arguing very strongly against this you know we need some kind of um, violent break and we need to smash the bourgeois state and yet at the same time he's saying once we've done that we actually can put the apparatus of the bourgeoisie to work for this new as he calls it dictatorship of the proletariat this transitional phase because it's all great in the long term the withering away of the state and you know wonderful commune democracy but there has to be something in the interim to before we get to that point and he's right. he's not particularly precise he doesn't really know he's grasping for what form this is going to take and for in state and revolution it's clear that, that he's learned a lot of lessons about what it shouldn't be like um, mm -hmm. so it shouldn't be anything like bourgeois western parliamentary democracy which is you know as mark said it's this con that every what is it every four or five years the proletariat get to vote in another bunch of bourgeoisie to repress them or something um, right. and so, so it's very clear that it's not going to be something like this so it has to be representative government but not parliamentary and it's not going to be about division of power it's going to be much more like the paris commune which is about um uniting executive and legislative um, powers together and it's about participation um, of yeah. the proletariat um, so drawing um, the proletariat into administration on a very practical level um, and so the blending of state and society like the 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 removal of that barrier that he he perceived that existed in in western bourgeois parliamentary systems and the way to kind of draw um, draw the working classes actually kind of physically into doing jobs in the state administration, which he he's fairly naive maybe in, in kind of believing that um, 
what, what does he say? That you know, the business of administration has been simplified yeah. by capitalism and all these other <laughs> things. And so, you know, what's the phrase? Any old kitchen maid can can be a state administrator or something. He's saying in 1917, 1918, he's changed his mind by 1921 yeah. about this. Um, and he, he, uh, he quite strongly rejects this by then. But at this stage, he's he's looking for opportunities to um, proletarianize and de-bureaucratize because bureaucracy is, you know, the, the sort of antithesis of what he feels um, genuine Soviet socialist democracy would look like. And so I, I started to see some um, structures and some practices um, that the Bolsheviks had built into their state apparatus in this, you know, their, their transitional phase, as they called it. Um, one of the things was um, I call collegiality in the book. So um, the use of uh, collegia as um, commissions, boards um, made up of kind of equally empowered members. You, you can draw in members of the proletariat you can draw in um, specialists in who are responsible for that particular area of government or administration but somehow kind of um, spreading of authority away from ministerial hierarchical government and they're not permanent either no they're not permanent um, and there's also sort of yeah there's kind of rotation yeah the rotation of officers so that no one person yeah sort of absorbs um, authority in that sense and you know paying paying everybody sort of fairly equal wages in the state administration was something that they uh, they experimented with um, but lots of other things too the the um, Drawing of um, human material, the proletariat human material, I guess, it was experimented with, but sort of gave way, you know, just through sort of sheer lack of suitable literate um, people, yeah. people to staff them. And so that gave way to things like the setting up of the RAB crin, you know, the workers and peasants inspectorate which was set up a couple of years later which was supposed to to be sort of the way that workers and peasants could keep an eye on having to rely on white collar holdover staff who actually made up quite a significant part of this um, um holdover administration from from the provisional government and the czar's government um, and also things like the the receptions which i talk a bit about in yeah. the book which is um a way of um, having some real um, contact between um, government, uh, you know, state administration and ordinary uh, workers and peasants who could come kind of physically into the, the space of the government and they could um, set out their complaints or um, requests and, and there could be a sort of responsive um, relationship between state and society there. So in all sorts of ways, I, I found that the... The early sort of Bolshevik government is trying to incorporate some of the broad ideas of state and revolution um, mm. into this new apparatus to to debureaucratize. It doesn't work particularly well, and many of these things are fairly short lived and and backfire spectacularly in 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 certain other ways in creating um, sort of um, more problems for the government in terms of its efficiency. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I think that it, you know, he doesn't throw state and revolution in, you know, into the dustbin of history, as Trotsky would say. Right. <laughs> um, right. Yeah. There's a very strong anti-bureaucratism streak, and and this seems to be one of the main, you know, coming out of state and revolution. It, as you know, Sovnarkom is put together, as it's working, this shadow of bureaucratism seems to be something that Lenin is particularly concerned about. Yeah. This. Bureaucratism is something that he returns to consistently um, in State and Revolution, and even in his his thoughts, his writings, all the way up to you know the last writings um, before he becomes too ill to, to work anymore. And the problem of how you debureaucratize that apparatus that you've used um, is very um, challenging, I think. And he doesn't manage to come up with really a viable solution although he tries and it's those aspects that I think um, I became particularly interested in those efforts um, yeah. to 
yeah, to, to proletarianize or to de-bureaucratize the state apparatus. Um, so I, I mean the sort of things that I mention in the book, um, like um, the use of um, collegia in administration rather than Yudina um, Nachali, a sort of one-man management, um, the use of um, the preomni or receptions to have a sort of, as Lenin called it, a living link with the people. Also you know, drawing in um, the human material of um, you know, proletarian blood into the state apparatus is part of this idea, but in practice falls flat really because of the lack of sort of um, suitable literate um, people to, to staff this. So, yeah, it's those sort of um, features that I hadn't really come across at all in, anywhere else that I sort of got, got swept up in, in, in researching. Um, so, you know, after um, November 1917, the Bolsheviks formed a, a short, what ended up being a short-lived coalition government with the left socialist revolutionaries. And for the most part, you know, when historians have addressed this coalition, they tend to dismiss it as just kind of Bolshevik window dressing. You know, they had to, they were put in a political position to have to bring in the left socialists, left socialist revolutionaries. Now, you know, that certainly they are, have to do that. But at the same time, the left SR role in Savnarkam has kind of been, you know, dismissed as pretty unimportant and, and kind of, as I said, window dressing. But you actually showed that the relations between the Bolsheviks and the left SRs are actually pretty good and they work well together uh, before they leave the government after Brest-Litovsk. So what were, talk a bit about the role of the left SRs in the early months of Sovnarkom and the relationship with the Bolshevik party. It's, it is quite amazing to me just how much vitriol had been spilled um, in terms of characterizing the the role of the left SRs and their you know, you know the, the you know they were just hammered in in everything that I looked at um, and actually you know I didn't really focus a lot of my um, secondary reading on left SRs before I did the archival stuff. I, I went to the archival stuff, the records of Sovnokom, and I saw the, the left SRs and the Bolsheviks sort of working in a fairly healthy, um, successful way, I thought. So then I sort of went back to the literature to see what, so why has nobody talked about this? And I was, yeah, I was amazed by this sort of outpouring of criticism, you know, henchmen of the Bolsheviks, lackeys, handmaidens, you know, um, fellow travellers. And I started to think that, you know, maybe some of this was um, because, you know, the, the, the heinous crime of the left SRs was in having a woman as one of their key leaders, I thought. You know, I, I remember reading um, Adam Ulam's book, um, you know, which is written in, what, the 1950s or 60s on, on the Bolsheviks. And he, I, there was a line in it where I came, I came across, I sort of was breathless. It was something like, you know, the, the party's fatuity as a political organisation was epitomised by its leader, 30-year-old woman. Um, hysterical woman, I think, was the phrase. And, you know, I just thought, my good, I probably was a 30-year-old uh, woman reading that and <laughs> at the time, almost. Um, and I just, yeah, I, I thought, hang on, this, you know, this kind of repetition of the language of the authorities at the time about, you know, women were not sort of political activists, they were just hysterical um, and so I think, you know, for me then, I thought there's something interesting, you know, that we can pick away at here and we can kind of try to address this, uh, the, the role of the left SNR party in, in, a, in a more sensible way. Um, and so, yeah, I guess I found really that, I mean, it's short lived, isn't it? It's, it's, you know, it's the early months of Soviet power. They, they join, well, some of them actually join the government from mid-November, actually before the formal joining um, after the Peasant Congress of, of December of 1917. But they, they formally join as coalition party um, in December of 1917. And then it's sort of March, April that they begin to, to withdraw. But within that period, so that they, they have, I think it was 53 meetings, joint Sovnarkom coalition government 
meetings they they divided up the portfolios and it was it was um that the the way that the jobs in the government were shared out was to do with this um joining of the the peasant congress of uh, with the workers congress of, of soviets came together um to you know great celebration um in you know the left srs had um well that they argue won a majority in that body and so had the mandate and they could um according to their view um formally um, join um and they they felt that they had sort of a legitimate mandate that to, to to join the government and they of course they took on um the portfolio that was most important to them of, of agriculture um, um, but they also had a number of other posts within the Sovnark arms so uh, my favorite Prosh Prashyan uh, took on the, the role of commissar for posts and telegraphs and there are a couple of others who had um, seats within Sovnarkom um, and, and yeah I didn't see here that there was some disabling conflict that meant that they couldn't work together and, and actually it seems in in many cases that there was sort of you know um, cross-party agreement on some things and some left SRs would go with the Bolsheviks on some issues and um, you know that there was a great deal in common that you know the values that they shared um, which was, it seemed to me, that of the obvious differences that, that the left SRs also felt very strongly that this should be a class-based um, system of Soviet democracy. They weren't interested in working with what they called you know, the, the representatives of the, of, the, um, of the bourgeoisie, which they felt the right SRs and the Mensheviks um, were, were willing to, to do. Um, and so, yeah, I, I was... I, I, was quite um, surprised to see that they'd had such a sort of terrible um, reception in, in the pre-existing literature. I thought, well, I may as well have a have a good go at laying this stuff out. And uh, and and I also I also was surprised by the fact that when they when they decided to leave the government, it wasn't something that they it, you know there was a there was a kind of split in the left SRs itself about leaving. I mean, it was a very controversial move within their own organization. Yeah, absolutely. This is this is true. So there had been um, sort of some points before Preslitovsk where there had been you know, differences of opinion between the Bolsheviks and particularly in the use of kind of arrests, repression of um, sort of opposition party members, that sort of thing. Um, but it, yeah, as I said, it hadn't sort of crippled operations, and they'd managed to some extent to to wield some influence to rein the Bolsheviks in to some extent. And it is, uh, yeah, from my reading of the of the of the archive material, I think it was this massive bombshell of the Breslatov's piece um, that I mean, it split the Bolshevik party just as much as it split the left SRs and the Bolsheviks. It was such a divisive issue. Um, and and yeah, it seemed to me that, you know, the left SRs, um, as you said, were, were internally divided about this. The Bolsheviks were internally divided. It caused a massive split, you know, between the left communists and the main like, sort of Leninist um Bolshevik uh, Communist Party members. So, yeah, I think um, it, it's really this, for me, that is the most important reason that they choose to withdraw from the Sovnarkom. And I say withdraw because they, they it's not like they then say, well, right, that's it, we're completely opposed to Soviet power and we want to overthrow it, which has been sort of suggested previously in literature, I think, that they were... You know that the Murbach assassination was their attempt to overthrow the entire Soviet system, um, and I think you know from what you actually see is that they they withdraw from Sovnarkom. They say you know as soon as this you know we come to some kind of agreement on this you know heinous um, peace treaty, then we can re-enter, and they they retain representatives in other parts of the government. Um, apparatus and in the Soviets still and they actually do think um, I would argue that they do think that they are probably going to rejoin the Soviet government at, you know after the fifth congress of Soviets um, where they, they feel that they've got a good shot at getting um, 
majority and they they feel then that they can sort of force the hand of the Bolsheviks to um, turn back this uh, this treaty and um, that doesn't happen of course um, and um, and it's the it's the end of any um, sort of um, formal coalition although some of the left SRs actually renounce uh, their party and stay on um, to work in, in the in the Soviet government after that so what what did Subnarcom do Subnarcom um, I think we can imagine as a sort of fairly standard government cabinet in that it held weekly meetings with those individuals that were the sort of um, lead chairman of their commissariats and they were um, tasked with dealing with the range of challenges that faced this um, young Soviet government and so they Basically, all of the commissariats um, could propose um, policy measures or um, legislation, and they would propose points to the agenda of Sovnarkom, um, and then all Sovnarkom members um, would discuss this. They, they would read sort of briefing papers before the meeting, ideally, um, and they would discuss this um, in in the sort of um, few hours of the Sovnarkom uh, meeting. And then um, decisions were taken by majority vote with Lenin in the chair. And increasingly, there, there was a there was a real effort to kind of um, regularize the operation so quite quickly uh, rules were brought in about um, how many minutes people could stand up and present their proposals and uh, you know how many people could then speak for and against this afterwards um, um, so there was this is kind of quite surprising um, drive to kind of systematize which kind of surprised me a lot I thought they're, they're becoming quite sort of sensible administrators from being this sort of underground party of radicals they quickly kind of put the suits on and they come in and they shuffle the papers and they're looking to kind of regularize the operation of, of this institution um so yeah and 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 they you know when you look at the um the protocoli the the, the agenda um you see that there are just the sovnacom is discussing all of the major um, policy initiatives um, and, and dealing with the challenges. So, you know, the economic questions, the, the social policy um, issues of, of that early legislation, um, just a whole range of, of, of government um, business is passing through the, the Sovnarkom's um, agenda in, in, in these earlier years. And I guess I, what, what surprised me, it, because, you know, the traditional line had been that very very quickly it's the party central committee that takes over this decision making role and when I I was very very surprised to to even just looking at the kind of material artifacts of the archival files that the the Sovnorcom stuff was all sort of you know nicely typed up in this sort of order and uh, very sort of professional whereas the, the central committee records seem to be you know hastily drawn up scribbled in handwriting not all of it but some of it and um you know really to to my um understanding seem to be really sticking to discussion of what we would think of as sort of you know bolshevik and then communist party business so um you know things you know like um, the running of of um, conferences and um, all those sorts of things, and of course they they, they began to, um, I suppose, talk about big policy issues, and and I think that's that's a fairly sort of normal, healthy process for a political party in power, the Central Committee, to to discuss big policy issues. Um, in that forum, but it's a different process, I think, from the one that comes later with the Politburo, when you go from that sort of quite high-level discussion of policy to day-to-day management and close decision-making on every sort of government, um, you know, item of business, if that makes sense. 
Now, one of the, the the most interesting things that you talk about is this uh, the role of, of South Narcom's administration department and how it would hold and Lenin personally would hold these, uh, you know, receptions where they where citizens would come and, you know, petition the government, petition officials, petition Lenin, sometimes have, you know, kind of long conversations with him. Um, you know, you referred to this earlier as Lenin saw this as you know, these receptions as against bureaucratism, but also as a living link with the people. So so talk about what these are, because these are really interesting that, you know, most people I don't think would think that these Bolsheviks would hold office hours. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? I know, that's exactly what it is, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's something, again, that completely surprised me because I hadn't actually come across this anywhere in any book that I'd read about um, you know, early Soviet politics or you know, anything like that. So um, at first I sort of, I read it, I read a bit about it in some of the memoirs of the the people staffing the Soviet um, administration department before I went to, to the archives. And I thought, you know, they talk about this and, and they're all sort of fairly um, hagiographical, you know, th- these memoirs. And you think that they say wonderful things, you know, Fetyeva and Bonchbrievich saying, oh, Lenin sat for hours with peasants and he was very, very keen to engage with them and to hear what they had to say and to feel like they could submit um, requests and, and to have the government listen to them and, and try to solve problems. And I, I sort of put it to one side and thought, oh, this is a bit, you know, sort of nauseating. <laughs> but then actually when I got into looking at the Sovnarkom files, I found actually that there was a great paper trail to to support this, much more so than, than I had expected. And so I started to take it a bit more seriously. And what I found in Lenin's um, correspondence with the... Uh, the staff of the administration department and also with um, the commissariats as again and again I found examples of him saying why haven't you dealt with this citizen's request you know this peasant is complaining to us about we've unfairly um, taken you know his cow or, or we haven't recompensed him for his horse you know to for the red army or something why haven't you sent some kind of reply and followed it up and yeah, I, again and again, he would use the word um, living link. This is a, you know, he would say, you know, this is our opportunity to create a living link. And he would use words like, you know, um, to, to um, avoid bu- bureaucratism. Um, this is a tool to, to get rid of that barrier between government and governed and to, yeah, to be, um, I don't know, receptive and open and responsive it was it was also it was also of course another source of of information for what is going on out there in the country right because i think another thing that that should be kept in mind is that the links that the the soviet or this early soviet government had with you know outside moscow um and even with its own party even with with within the bolshevik party itself was really kind of fragmented so the these living links are really important just in terms of information in addition to the attempts to break down bureaucratism and to have this kind of you know development of a new notion of what democracy yeah, is yeah absolutely i think that's a really important feature of this and again it's something that lenin himself um noted and the staff of the Sovnarkom reception noted that he really valued sort of sitting down with these peasants and hearing what was going on in the in their region or their village um, and I think it's something interesting again that I need to think more carefully on in terms of um, Soviet democracy but there's information gathering and and it's I think maybe that there's maybe a perspective that this is about sort of gathering information to surveil to monitor and therefore to control um, the population but I think there's also something in the sense that there's there's a desire to you know have the finger on the pulse of popular opinion um, in a way that helps you also shape I don't know, I don't want to say policy because it's not that they're, you know, listening, uh, you know, in a systematic way and responding through formation of policy. But I think there is some kind of, you know, the, the, the early Soviet government really makes a great effort to collect this svodki, you know, the you know, information reports through other 
um, apparatus too. And I think there's something more than just we want to know what people think because we're really suspicious. I think it's there's, there's something. Right. It's more like a it's kind of like polling in a way. It's kind of like a, you know, a really, you know, uns- you're not really, you know, anecdotal form yeah, of polling. Absolutely. No, I, I think it is. And I, I would, it's something I'd like to think about a bit more carefully, maybe do a bit more research into this, because it seems to me that it becomes one of the most important mechanisms of, um, you know, connection between um, government and people throughout the entire rest of the, of the Soviet period. It only kind of expands. Um, um, and yeah, and I think it, it, it interested me also because it threw up to me this issue of why is it though that the Bolsheviks come with this transformational program, this agenda, you know, it's, you know, state and revolution is all about let's crush, let's crush the existing state, let's, you know, it's fundamental change. And yet they're um, continuing what is such a kind of deeply ingrained um, sort of um, paternalistic feature of czarist state society relations. You know, this is something that goes back to, you know, sort of um, 17th century um, Russia, and you see it in various forms um, through from sort of 18th, 19th century, this idea of petitioning. Yeah, and we see it today with Putin's yearly call-in show. Well, absolutely. That's it. This di- direct line with Putin, you can call in and you can speak to you know, the Vosht, as it were, and he, he's interested in um, the details of your existence and you can complain about your local council or whatever it is, and he will step in there and solve that problem for you. So it, there's something um, quite interesting going on here. And I suppose what I don't want to, to suggest, and I think maybe I sort of, perhaps have given the impression maybe in the book that I I thought I actually believe that this is some kind of genuine, um, truly, you know, democratizing um, feature. You know, I'm not trying to say that because the Soviet government reacted to some letters that some citizens sent in, that that actually makes this some kind of, you know, amazing um, responsive democratic I'm, I, I'm, I hope that's that's not what I'm trying to say but I do think we, we also want to to try to understand what the government thought they were doing and you can see how it's kind of a hypnotic system when you know um, peasants in particular were very good at writing quite persuasive letters and they, they very quickly appropriate the language of whoever the new bosses are to try to kind of manipulate that to get to, to, you know, for, for their benefit. Um, so th- there's that really interesting kind of peasant agency. And it's very much, I think, a reaction to that. Like the, Lenin doesn't come in and think, I'm going to set up this reception and deal with the peasants. It's, you know, he's inundated with visitors. And the staff mentions sort of thousands and thousands, you know, over these early months of Soviet power coming to the centre to find out what's going on. And they all want to sort of, have some kind of personal contact um, with this, you know, uh, the new leadership here. And, and yeah, so it, it's like, you know, that the traditional political culture is sort of hitting the Bolsheviks in the face and they have to have to do something about it. They have to adapt to, to popular expectations. I mean, they don't have to. Maybe they could have just turned everybody away. But I guess, you know, they, they, they're hypnotised by the peasants responses when they say things like you know you thank you so much for listening and responding to us you know you really do have our best interests at heart and you can see how that gives you a false sense of sort of legitimacy and acceptance um from from the people um who are sort of thanking you for for this sort of um interaction Sovnikom declines as a as a central part of the you know the apex of the soviet state and and the party begins to grow in its influence and really kind of, you know, the party state as we know it begins to form. So so what led to Sovnarkom's decline? I didn't find a simple answer for this. And I, what I found was there were sort of a number, number of things coming together. Um, so, for, yeah, those early years I saw Sovnarkom working as the sort of principal executive cabinet body of the early Soviet government and then the Politburo sort of begins to expand from from mid-1919 you know it's it's growing it's it's expanding 
um, and the, the whole kind of um, party machinery is, is expanding into this Politburo, Old Bureau Secretariat form. And so that plays some part in the, the sort of how part of the question of this migration of power so that, that there, there is an alternative um, apparatus to be operating from whereas before I think um, you know under under Svodlov there actually there'd been sort of you know the, the party had, um, machinery had had not expanded and it had maybe gone into sort of um, decline as he turned his attention much more to his role um, as chairman of the Central Executive Committee of Soviets. So that, that that's part of the story, I think, is this expansion. It's something that Rigby um, certainly um, thought was very, very important, that there's, that there's this now, this alternative apparatus. And, of course, there'd always been the issue, the unresolved issue of where legitimacy for this new Soviet system comes from. You know, is it this um, elected body of Soviets from the local level feeding into those um, central um, Soviet institutions? Or is it something that arises from the, um, you know, the vanguard party, the Bolshevik, then the Communist Party, uh, representing the proletariat's interest, as you know, its historic mission. So there's always a sort of unresolved, I, I think, a sort of fairly unresolved issue of these competing bases of legitimacy. So there's the there's there's that problem of of you know it's never sort of firmly established. I think definitively where legitimacy come from. Then you have the expansion of um, the um, Politburo and the Secretariat, the Org Bureau. Um, machinery but it's also I think to do with um, some of the problems in the functioning of the state apparatus so all that sort of that you know the party stuff is the how but for me it wasn't entirely um, sufficient to explain the why part because I think you know um, it we need to look also at, at what's going on in the Soviets and in the Sovnarkom. And for all of the excitement at these um, you know, innovative um, measures to try to de-bureaucratize the, the, the state apparatus and um, experiment with these, with these novel features like collegiality, um, and um, Priyamnaya and, you know, um, the Soviet apparatus as combining executive and, and legislative functions, but still being a sort of um, representative kind of, um, um, you know, political structures. Um, I think it's, it's the, the civil war, of course, so the circumstances come into this too. So it's about the, and, and we, you know, I, actually we don't know enough really about what happens to the Soviets in the civil war. We just don't have enough local studies. We don't even have enough, as, as I mentioned earlier, the kind of studies of what's going on in those most important central um, supreme Soviet um, institutions. Um, so that there's really a lot of important work to do. But we, you get the sense that the Soviets are kind of, um, you know, there's, there's an atrophy in, in the Soviets during the civil war um, because of those um, you know conditions of um, kind of um, exigencies of, of the fighting taking people away. That, you know, there's not the opportunity for assemblies to to meet. Um, so all of those circumstances are. So would you would you say that there's a there's a because of the civil war there's a kind of an, uh, a power vacuum in terms of the, the Soviet state institutions and the one organization that has you know, the manpower by the middle and end of the civil war is the party. And they just kind of step into, you know, they, they have to run things. And so they, they just, the party committees kind of step in and, and basically um, overtake or fill in the vacuum of, of that was left from the decline of the Soviets. Yes, I do. And I think there's also something else going on, um, though, in terms of the... What's, what's happening in Sovnarkom is that those prestigious party members who had previously been um, commissars and had attended Sovnarkom meetings, they begin to drift out 
of the Sovnarkom and you don't see those big names coming into meetings. Lenin is pretty much always there, you know, apart from when he shot a shot in in sort of August 1917. He he has a bit of time off then and Svodlov steps in for a bit. But apart from that, apart from when he's ill, he's had his strokes, he's he's always there. But the other big names, you know, Trotsky drifts away quite quickly. Yeah, he's dealing with the war too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, um, So it's, it's... I got to thinking, so so why is this? Why are they? You know, because for a, a government cabinet to work, you need to have the leading members of the party in power to be populating that body. Uh, so what is it that's happening? And what seems to be happening is that, you know, the collegial system allows for those people appointed as commissars not to attend. They send deputies as the members of the um, collegia, and um, and so it becomes a sort of gathering of um, representatives of departments, and it's all about sort of departmentalism, and you it, you lose this the the feeling that you are you know deciding major important um, policy issues, and it's just about representing the interests of your individual department and so i think part of that process is that they they see okay where is the legitimacy of the commissars coming from it had been from the soviets the soviets are in decline um during the civil war and so it's the party that as you said is is really kind of um, expanding in both practical terms in terms of its kind of um prestige or as it were during the civil war and so they there's a process to, to begin um, appealing decisions that Sovnarkom makes um, and appealing them to the Politburo. Um, so, you know, if you bring your um, agenda point and you're voted down in the Sovnarkom, it doesn't matter because the next thing you can do is send it to the Politburo and you say, you know, could you guys have another look at this and make a decision? And then so gradually you, you, you know, you kind of stop bothering to send your important things, you know, if it's not going your way, you send it to the Politburo. And there's, there's a recognition by Lenin, um, by Osinski, um, Obolensky, another really important um, state activist at this point, that this is this has begun happening. It's a very unhealthy process that the Politburo is constantly second-guessing what Sovnarkom is doing and overturning its decisions sometimes. Um, and and it's yeah it's it's that that sort of vacuum of authority um, that makes this happen. And how much is Sovnarkom basically tied to Lenin personally, in the sense of once he you know he's shot, he's his his health is declining by you know nineteen twenty into twenty one twenty two, and then finally in the, you know he has a series of strokes. Uh, so how much is it really just I mean literally Lenin's government, and without Lenin there is no government. Lenin certainly seemed to think that this was part of the problem when you know he's he's speaking at um, party congress um, I think in 1921 and he says something like you know as soon as I began to have to withdraw due to ill health from the work of the Sovnarkom things started to sort of go wrong here and it's it's this unhealthy situation arising um, from that. And and I think, yeah, in Rigby's book, he's very keen on this idea that it's the Sovnarkom is very much shaped around Lenin and his personality and the way that Lenin likes to, to work. And he's able to juggle lots of different things and, and control that body. Um, but I don't know. I think it's it, there's also more fundamental questions about um, ensuring, you know, that where where the legitimacy, the, the the authority of this body comes from, you know, it, it seems to me that there could have been um, the possibility that, that you know, um, without Lenin, the Sovnarkom could have developed if there'd been this kind of strong um, tie between the Soviets and the Sovnarkom as, you know, the, the basis of legitimacy of Soviet power, as it were, and it's this confusion with, uh, you know, the Communist Party. I think that's that's important um, here too. And, and finally, you know, given that Sovnarkom does have a short life in terms of its, you know, significance in the early Soviet state, where do you place it in the history of Soviet governance or how we understand the Soviet system? I suppose I think um, it tells us that 
again, going back to that, you know, the view that the party state was the inevitable, direct, straightforward outcome of this sort of original sin um, of, you know, Bolshevik ideology, I think we can see very clearly that this is not the case at all, that this is a period of really kind of ad hoc experimentation. Um, and that all these, there's a wonderful sort of um, a cocktail of, of um different forces coming together that shapes that migration of power from um, state to party. So there's there's the problems that Lenin and the Bolsheviks build into the state apparatus, you know, through these kind of attempts to, to de-bureaucratize, um, you know, the, whether it's the preomni, the collegia, um, this issue of not having a clear division of power, a separation of powers between legislative and executive. There's all these sorts of things that are kind of making for some kind of malfunctioning to some extent of, of that. There's also the, the civil war circumstances that just are not ideal for this kind of experimental, collegial approach to, to governance. And there's also that, that, that pre-existing political culture, that landscape um, that also is, you know, much more kind of, um, what's the word, I suppose? It's it's informing this drive to um, sort of paternalist approach, you know, through through the preomnia, I, I think. So it's, it's yeah, it's telling us that there's a, a much less sort of elegant, clear um um, explanation than the totalitarian model would would have us believe, um, and I think it's also interesting. It, maybe it throws the Gorbachev, um, you know, democratization reforms in a new light, where we think, um, you know, he his removal of, of Article Six from the Soviet Constitution is trying almost to restore that very early system of of Sovnarkom, almost where you have this separation of party and state so it's we can kind of it it maybe illuminate what's going on there um a little bit more and um yeah i don't know i think maybe in the in the broader scheme of things viewing um this migration of power from sovnarkom to to the politburo as a sort of dare i say it failure of democratic transition (laughs) Rather than, you know, this attempt to build a sort of iron disciplined party state, it's it's actually more about crimes of omission than commission. And maybe it helps us to think about other failed democratic transitions in sort of non non-Western liberal context too, whether that's, you know, Arab Spring or post-colonial Africa, you know, there's maybe issues about um, you know, um trying to to deliver democratic um, transition in, you know, um, traditional political cultures or, you know, lack of uh, literate, educated um, cadres. Or share, yeah, exactly, yeah. That was Laura Doubts, an assistant professor of history at Durham University, specializing in the history of the institutions and political culture of the early Soviet government. She's the author of Inside Lenin's Government, Power, Ideology, and Practice in the Early Soviet State, published by Bloomsbury. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye!
gonna try that on you We'll make you die It'll get you just a little bit sick